All right, welcome. I'm Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We're from Fusion, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. Today, we will look at how large language models are changing the world. And by large language models, we actually mean, well, LLMs, and we mean things like ChatGPT, which I'm sure everyone in the world has heard of at this point. Um, I saw a report today, and apparently a quarter of all adults have tried generative AI um, which is pretty insane since it's only really come about uh, to the masses like in the past few weeks. Uh, so, Kevin, over to you. Uh, you have a little story for us. Yeah. So I think to jump into the conversation of LLMs, especially as it kind of pertains to bioinformatics in our world of work here, uh, I kind of wanted to start in this research paper put out by Stephen Piccolo over at BYU where he was looking at this problem of, you know, how is LLMs, how, how are LLMs going to be impacting the field of bioinformatics? It was interesting the way he kind of framed his uh, paper, his manuscript, and that he was discussing how, you know, actually getting access to bioinformatics talent or learning programming has been such a hindrance to so many different researchers. And his, I guess, kind of initial thesis there is that I think GPT can help us solve that, right? So the way he sort of went about constructing his study is that they had this intro to bioinformatics course that had pretty uh, well-utilized prompts of programming problems of, you know, from all the way from basic, uh, name a variable, do a couple, you know, uh, translate uh, DNA to RNA type tasks, all the way to more complex things in their uh, intro to bioinformatics course. And essentially, he just fed the GPT model or rather, he fed the online GPT web application all these different questions and saw how it performed throughout. And I think after, on first pass, GPT was able to correctly code out in Python 75% of the, uh, the exercises. And then after like mm -hmm. a bit more of initial prompting or something like that, it was like 97% uh, or so correct. It was able to, even on the ones that it failed, it uh, was able to uh, come to it to a resolve after a bit of like, hey, actually, did you think about this or try this uh, approach with Python or, or whatever it is? Um, yeah. And like, you know, as somebody who was reading that, I think I had kind of like maybe two frames of mind when I was reading that. I think there's there's a frame of mind of my, that I have where if I was fully removed from this sort of GPT phenomenon and somebody kind of handed me the, the these results, I'd be floored. I think how the heck is there this GPT model that's already this capable of performing the things that, you know, I've spent my whole career trying to uh, equip myself to be able to do. Um, though there's also another aspect of me who's been involved in this now, or I guess more heavily utilizing GPT for maybe three or so months. And I'm surprised it only got 97%. You know, I was like looking at some of those <laughs> uh, prompts and I was surprised by the, 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 Stephen did a pretty good job in showing which, uh, exercises it failed on, I thought, oh man, that seems like it, it, maybe a couple more uh, clarifying prompts could have gotten that solved as well. But nonetheless, uh, kind of highlights how far uh, these resources are, even in how they how far they've come and how applicable they can be, uh, even to a field that is sort of as niche as uh, bioinformatics. So yeah, curious on your end, like, is somebody who's been way more involved in machine learning for a much longer time than, than I have, was this the obvious conclusion to you? Is this, does this seem like this? Okay, we were heading here uh, for a while in terms of being able to replicate bioinformatics um, after with natural language prompts. 
uh, from your perspective? Well, first of all, uh, like the solutions that it gives like are insanely good. Like it's not just that they are answering the question. It's they yeah. are answering it like an, an expert would, you know, so it, it's yeah. that extra high bar, you know, and it's going to be very difficult telling the difference between a student who's just done it themselves and actually someone who's uh, actually spent a lot of time on stuff. And we use the same questions in when hiring people as well, uh, quite often yeah. in mathematics, you know, you give them some problems and see, just to double check, you know, are they actually knowledgeable in the area or are they just, you know, have they done a, a 10 minute course on it and they just know all yeah. the buzzwords, but don't actually know what it means. Like, um, but for me, like I, I did uh, my PhD in machine learning uh, many, many years ago. And this stuff was always like just 10 years away and it was always 10 years away, you know, and we had all of these amazing um, algorithms and everything, but they were slow and they didn't really work and they kind of worked in niche areas. And you had all these edge cases like, I know there's like famous ones where they trained our uh, neural nets on, say, x-rays. And what they found was, they even had this during COVID actually, was that, you know, when they say trained it uh, on x-rays to predict uh, COVID or severity of COVID, they found that, oh, wow, you know, this works amazing. It You know, it always predicts the correct answers. You know, it always finds yeah. that people are severe and people who aren't. But it turned out that actually all the uh, machine learning was predicting was, was the person lying down because they're severely ill or standing up when they're not severely ill or was looking at the fonts on the x-rays themselves and all you know all these different edge cases you know uh, for many years where you've had all of these problems and it's kind of worked and you know the experts in the field were like yeah we, we know we're you know it's just within our grasp but it's still 10 years away and then suddenly like in the blink of an eye it's here and it's not just here it is everywhere mm. and it's gonna have a uh, fundamental changes how, how we do everything and, and that fundamental change i'm sure we're going to kind of talk about throughout here um, but even on the onset, I don't know, I'm still kind of even wrestling with how I feel about it, because there's a component of me, you know, when I first got into public health, I was at the Virginia Public Health Laboratory, they didn't have any bioinformatics, anything, but they were generating a lot of data. And I was tasked with my first uh, kind of deliverable there was get some kind of salmonella characterization workflow. And I remember I sort of trudged through learning. Uh, I even wrote it in Makefile for what it's worth. So that was my first uh, right. pipeline was in Makefile. <laughs> I learned it from Steven Turner and it just did everything that you would think it would do. It would do read processing, de novo assembly, pushed it through MLST and then like zero type finder or whatever the tool was. Um, and then got it, you know, compiled all the reports into like a, a TSV or something like that. And in going through that process, it felt like so much pride. Like I am a bioinformatics scientist, you know what I mean? And there's still that attached value of like, I am a bioinformatics scientist. Um, so seeing that your works now that have taken me, you know, some time to learn, you know, and, and to some extent have attached value to uh, now prompted and it's done, you know, even on, on a GPT that wasn't even specifically trained on bioinformatics, now being able to dominate, you know, this at least intra-level bioinformatics course is like, there's a yeah, funny and it's amazing. <laughs> you now have like people that describe themselves as prompt engineers using this in their everyday work for everything, you know, marketing and for tech stuff and for writing technical yes. reports. And it's just amazing. Like it, it is very democratic and it takes a very different skill to write a really good prompt for a GPT or test GPT or Claude or whatever than it does to write the like technical software. It, it's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. And I think that would be the argument of, of like knowing some of the technical nuance. 
you know, you no longer have to go through that same barrier to obviously, you know, write even just the code, but having some of that basic knowledge allows you, as you said, first to write a good prompt, but then also correct it. I think that was one of the, the caveats too that Stephen had in this is like, you're going to need some level, at least at this point of uh, expert approval, right? Like kind of like what you mentioned too, or yeah. do they have COVID? Was it proper diagnosis or were they laying down? Right. Uh, luckily though, I think GPT, and this is kind of what we can kind of get into the next point. It's way beyond that of, of uh, the models you're describing, right? Because of some, to my understanding, pretty groundbreaking uh, new approaches to uh, machine learning architecture. Is that a fair way to describe transformers or how LLMs kind of yeah. differ from what was back then? I mean, this came out of nowhere. Uh, well, like computer science, to be quite frank, right, hadn't changed in decades. Yeah. And finding something new in computer science like was really really difficult and you know moves at a snail's pace much like math maths and that kind of stuff and uh, and physics so compared to biology and bioinformatics which just goes a mile a minute you know if you read a paper that's five years old it's totally out of date and um, so what happened uh, I think that caught everyone off guard was that in 2017 Google had this paper on transformers and yeah not not the you know the toys that turn into robots but like transformers as just a way of uh, a different architecture for uh, training uh, neural networks and not only that it you go from sequential which is where you can only do one thing at a time to in parallel and at the same time there's a revolution happening in with bitcoin mining so you had all of these uh, people who wanted to run the same thing over and over again which is mine bitcoins for phenomenal amounts of money and so companies like nvidia we're creating graphics cards, which just churn through this stuff, uh, GPUs, and they were running servers. They you know, didn't have a, a graphics interface on them, but they were high powered. They were very good at doing large numbers of calculations, the same calculations on the same stuff all the time. And so that meant that the, you know, that GPU market was pushed ahead because so much money is flooding into that from Bitcoin and like, you know, whole server farms of them. And it turns out that these transformers can run really well on them and you can parallelize training stuff. You're not just doing, you know, a small number of things anymore. You're doing billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of things, you know, and being ingested in at the same time. So that's kind of where that took off. And then suddenly you had a very incremental, you know, you had a, one or two little models uh, coming along and then suddenly more and then, yeah, 2023 and it's suddenly they're everywhere like gpt and claude and all of these things it just exploded and okay so it's worth noting the name of that google paper because it's a bit eerie right it's called attention is all you need so there's a there's a funny meme component to it that's like oh it's like oh attention is all you need it makes me think you know especially with like social media it's like training it on all this attention has that weird, weird kind of double entendre but uh is it can you give a perspective from the machine learning world like if at all it's possible to break down what a transformer is conceptually and, and why it's so fundamentally different from maybe recurrent neural networks and whatever sort of machine learning methods were, were put in play before and what what is that jump what is that zero to one that we're talking about that we can't look back from uh with transformers 
God, uh, I wish I could tell you totally, but I don't fully understand it either myself. Okay, fair, um, but fair. Fu- fundamentally, right, uh, <laughs> the big difference is that instead of training something on, say, one word at a time or, you know, yeah. or a small amount of data at a time, you're training on everything at, at the same time. And so mm. what you, the very first step is to take your text and turn it into numbers, right? So they call this tokens. And you might have heard of this uh, if you're using, say, ChatGPT, it'll only work up to a certain number of tokens, yeah, it's yeah. So it's roughly one word, one token, or sometimes it can be if it's a longer word, it might break it into you know uh, the different parts of the word. And so then you have a like a big long list of numbers, an array of numbers, a vector of numbers, and you perform operations on those you mathematical operations. You put them in into an encoder. Again, it creates more intermediate numbers, and within that you have your neural network. And neural network, you can think of it as you know you have a few. Um, inputs to uh, into a graph and then a few outputs and then a black box in the middle and it's a tangle and mess of wires being connected all over the place and each of those edges are wires gets a different weight and you know magic happens this is kind of how it works inside our bodies um, yeah but on a large scale and it then you have the decoder which is kind of putting it all together so that's uh, where it can say guess the next word or generate the next word look in the context and then you kind of decode it as well. So it's all numbers in the middle. And yeah. we don't really know how this is actually working in the middle, which is going to make it hard for clinical applications, actually, because people like to know why is that answer there? And you can't really tell, you know, if there's a billion things going on there. Like, why why does it work that way? We don't know. But can it produce the reliable results? Because I think that's no. true to, yeah, that, that that's that's going to be the interesting thing in terms of the, the biological application. And, and I'm curious too, like you, you, uh, you mentioned the space of computer science being generally static. And then there's this like, you know, big revolution that we were kind of like living through. But like you said, there's kind of been two uh, since our, our like even just general working memory of um, sort of the crypto blockchain uh, revolution there. And then also now what we're looking at in transformers. And it is kind of wild that they both have that overlap in the dependency on repetitive processing. All the while, there's this one company kind of out there, you know, people are rushing for gold, NVIDIA is selling shovels, right? They're the one company that have optimized for this exact purpose. And it wasn't obvious, at least to somebody who's so far outside of this, that GPUs are going to be the move, right? Because like whenever I was buying a computer yeah. or in the beginning, it was, or even just a couple of years ago, it was CPU memory. And then if, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in gaming, right? Graphic uh, processing units, GPU would be of concern. Now it's like, man, these things are hard to come by because of the applications of mining and now in transformers here. And I guess in our own space, uh, if you look at um, base calling, you know, I'd say on, on a nanopore yeah. or whatever, that uses GPUs heavily. And it you know, does an hour instead of a week, which is kind of insane if you think about it. But under the hood, they use their own models as well. So my guess actually is that these large language models and um, the, the like are going to improve base calling. So, you know, I predict in the next year, you know, nanopore uh, bases are going to get a lot better. They're good now. You know, they, they sort of what, uh, 90% accuracy and now they're up at about 97, 98. And, you know, they'll go way higher. And they already have made pretty big leaps and bounds, like uh, one on their like physical chemistry side with the R10s, but then they've always pretty 
been pretty uh, willing to lean into that AI correction, you know, having their, uh, their, their models correct based on even, you know, what is the chemistry you're using? What's the, the uh, base calling model version, everything. Then they have their AI models uh, the, to help correct for whatever squig patterns or anomalies might be in the data itself. And, and so I guess, yeah, that, that kind of brings us, obviously, like you said, 25% of adult humans <laughs> on the planet, which is always wild when you still meet somebody who hasn't uh, used GPT, which is almost yeah. like a bit of a, it's almost like a bit of a gift, like, oh, I cannot wait to show you what this thing is. But <laughs> obvious applications in nearly every field, we already kind of highlighted how, as is, you could prompt it to write uh, at least to the extent of an intro bioinformatics course. I'd argue much further than that. And even just based on our given experiences and working together over the past a uh, couple of months here. Um, other bioinformatics applications. Um, yeah, the code assistance to me is a lot of the big obvious one. Um, in, in it could be by means of just starting the prompt with GPT itself. Like I've done that a ton of times, like, uh, or the Copilot. I haven't used Copilot nearly as much as you have uh because i did like the first 30 day trial and it was at a time when i wasn't doing that much programming so i never felt the need to kind of expound upon it uh but i remember it feeling so much like gpt in that i could write a comment of the code block i was about to do or or, or intending to write and then it would write a function or, or whatever it might be kind of out uh, for me and it might even suggest uh, if i remember it would even suggest different um modules to import or something like this. It, it, would, it would predict how this could be done. And then, I, oh, even beyond that, you could toggle through its suggestions. Like it might do it a couple of different ways. So yeah, well, what has your experience been so far with, is that the obvious application right now is the code writing assistance or or maybe there's, there's conversation of uh, training more bioinformatics specific models so that we could have a different kind of interface with uh, LLMs, but as opposed to GPT, as it you know, kind of sits on an LLM. I think we're going to have a bit of both. Um, so you're going to have rather than going to like ChatGPT and OpenAI's website or to to Edge and Bing Chat, yeah, it's going to be integrated into everything. You know, like literally everything. I use um, GitHub Copilot Chat, which is like a, it's a beta version, so you have to use like the latest cutting edge uh, Visual Code Studio. Uh, sorry, Visual Code. Uh, Visual Studio Insiders. Code. Oh, yeah, okay. VS Code Insiders. So it's like the, the nightly build kind of stuff. So it's a bit ropey sometimes. But so you have to use the cutting edge. And in there, it's even better. Like it is phenomenally good. And it is ChatGPT4 as well. And you can you have a little chat interface as well. So what I, I, I reckon I probably have sped up my coding by my 30, 40%. Wow. And I've changed the style of coding now. At the very beginning of a class, like I'll write a big long text description of what I want with typos, with everything like that. You know, I'll copy and paste the first few lines of say input files, and then it knows what I want to do. It and then it goes and just builds it. It's it's mostly right, and you know sometimes you have to guide it in a different direction. But you know it it gets you most of the way there, and it saves a lot of donkey work. You type in the keyboard, you know, just doing all the procedural stuff, and yeah it's phenomenal and then when you combine that with other things like say write the docs uh which is a, another brilliant application and that you know will generate all the comments in a you know nice uh set formats and things like that so yeah 
it's phenomenally good when it comes to programming, but it's gotten even better for data science. Have you used uh, Code Interpreter? You know what? Uh, when you showed it to us the other day, when you were kind of, we had some internal data and you were showing me how it compared, I immediately, you know, started trying it out. And I was even just grabbing data from online. You can get, there's like these big data sets and just seeing what it could do. So yeah, if you want to kind of briefly explain the Code Interpreter and, and how crazy intuitive it feels. Like, is it, it's as if you're speaking to a data scientist right by your side. So like to give you context, this is only released six days ago. And it is now like my go-to feature in ChatGPT. Um, so Code Interpreter, it basically means that you can upload files into ChatGPT. It can create Python and it'll run the Python for you and give you back results. So the most obvious thing to do is actually upload a spreadsheet or multiple spreadsheets and then ask it to do stuff to it. Uh, vaguely, it might be, tell me something about this spreadsheet. It knows the context. So like, maybe it'll read in the, the column names in your spreadsheet and it'll work out, okay, you've got species here, you've got NCBI. That must mean NCBI means, you know, the National Center for Bioinformatics or whatever it's called in, in Bethesda. Um, so it knows the context because you're talking about biological stuff. And then it knows, you know, when you mention taxonomy, okay, we actually mean taxonomy of bacteria. And so it has the context there in its memory or, or what, however you describe it. Yeah. And that's just phenomenal. So then you can go and ask questions. You can say, tell me something about this. And it will, it'll go through and say, oh, you know, this is, you know, maybe summarize from columns or pull out interesting bits. You can tell it, okay, well, show me some graphs. And it goes and does it. Or you might say, here are two different spreadsheets. Can you, you know, kind of merge them and then produce some graphs and then pull out some interesting stuff from them? And it will. And you can be very vague and it'll give you high quality stuff. Like within, say, five minutes, you can do work that maybe would have taken a data scientist maybe five hours, you know, bashing a keyboard. Yeah. And a full-fledged data scientist. Like these are strong figures. And I would say even, I don't know, maybe this is, you know, given our perspective, but what's all the more amazing about it is then it gives you this sort of show your work, right? And you can see, oh, exactly how it did it. And then you can manipulate it. You can change it as you see fit, if you care to. Like the things that I've, you know, at least thus far I've seen about it. It's like, yeah, that's exactly. So long as I'm able to articulate my question in, in a uh, a clear way, I've seen nothing but strong results. And if it makes an error, if there's an error there, it apologizes, right? And then tries to <laughs> different I'm always kind to it too. I think when you were first showing me it, when we were in England, you you always put like the please and stuff. And I felt the same. Yeah. I Every now and then I'll even say thank you, you know, like afterwards. And it's just like, you're welcome. <laughs> I did uh, I did see a paper like uh, where apparently, well, I don't know how true this is, but if you are, you know, polite to it, it'll actually yeah. answer better. And I guess it's because it's trained on a lot of data sets, um, you know, public data sets where people are polite to each other. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of linking into this human language. And it's funny, you know, this 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 whole concept of like the Luddite and like these people who are losing their positions and this stuff, I, you know, as much as I describe the, the bioinformatics experience I'm having here with, uh, you know, a, a certain that's been a core part of my my professional character. It's like, oh, and now it's being util uh, something that could uh, quickly eat that up. I'm sure the data scientists are feeling that as well. There's a whole field of professions there. But ultimately, you know, if I'm able to remove my my personal self from it, it's a great thing, right? You want everyone. There's not enough data scientists, there's certainly not enough bioinformatics scientists. So it definitely, it, it allows so many people to overcome that barrier. And again, like I think Stephen Piccolo from that paper we opened up on, 
that was the kind of premise of his paper is like so many people lack access to bioinformatics uh, technicians or technical practitioners now. And often I think what he was saying is like, sometimes they just need a, a couple of lines of code to help analyze their data in the same way. Some people have tons of data, you know, that, that maybe even they, they've, they've curated over years, but they don't know how to maybe clean it up, how to get it into our studio or whatever, you know, kind of a, a scripting language is appropriate for them to actually Absolutely. just ask these questions. Right. But they have the, they are themselves sort of prompt engineers in that they want to know certain things about these data that, these these kinds of resources can help elucidate for them so much of data science isn't really doing the like the hardcore data analysis and pulling out stats it's just munging data to get it from one format to another format to another format yeah and that takes so much time like and this just automates it all and it gives you the python code so you can copy and paste it which is just phenomenal like it it means that we are changing position from being like say playing an instrument in an orchestra to being the conductor you know and you can get so much more done quicker. It's not going to be a problem because there's so much data out there that you know data scientists couldn't ever analyze at all. So it's just going to make us more powerful. And you you brought up something about earlier that you know the the prompt engineering conversation is kind of running through my head because I think bioinformatics and you said you know on the tech world just being so male dominant in in over the past you know since it started here. Um, but how it opens up so many more access points. So it's going to be so interesting to see even how like the academic space curriculums change here because it, it's not just data science anymore. It's like, how do you speak with this thing? How do you interact with the language of it? Um, so it, it invites more access points for crossover of people in different disciplines. Uh, you may you may not know anything about data science, but you know you can look at a large piece of data um, and ask it interesting questions no matter what your data science background is. Yeah, I remember doing my degree, like we'd have these shared courses where you'd have people from like music and uh, like humanities coming in to learn programming for one semester. And it was difficult, very difficult for them because yeah. they're in such a different mindset coming in and then, you know, having to do programming with people who actually know how to, to program. And we're all talking different languages, you know, but having prompts like this, I think will revolutionize that because they can learn it a lot quicker but in a, something that they can re, uh, reflect on in a in a manner that, that works for them and they can have it put out answers that are relevant to their own work you know they won't be just these esoteric computer science problems like a uh, like traveling salesman problem which we know all about but actually someone working in, in humanities or, or music would not and so i think it's going to actually improve education overall it, it it's going to be interesting because we i think we definitely benefit from living or having experienced both sides of the fence and that we trudge through, we had those technical challenges, but we were able to kind of look at it with a critical eye. So like my wife and I, we play with GPT all the time and we talk about it in the context of like writing essays or something. You could, you could give it any prompt that of everything we've ever done. You can write an essay in seconds. You can make it funnier. You can make it in the tone of uh, what your favorite actor or actress or whatever it might be. And then you have that essay there. Um, you know, there's again that balancing that Luddite and still like, you know, uh, technical first adopter sides in me of like, well, but then we'll, no one's incentivized to learn how to write an essay. You know, will, will people yeah. be incentivized to ever learn Python, right? Will the programming language ever even matter? You could imagine it developing another language, another programming language that's a bit more optimized, maybe to the field, and you're asking it to write something and it shows you the code. 
there's no one any longer or very few people who can even make use of the show the work but i guess you know we don't write code in assembly anymore you know it's uh yeah. or you know very very low levels we have these higher level languages you know very few people write programming do programming in c you know people are you know much more the higher level where they can get a lot more done they don't have to worry about the finicky little things underneath and maybe that's what's going to happen um but in terms of content generation that's just changing the world. Like, I mean, why would you go and write a book now from scratch when ChatGPT yeah. can, you know, knock out a hundred thousand word novel, you know, in in seconds? Well, not ChatGPT at the moment. Um, Claude actually, Claude too can do that. It's got a context window of or a prompt size of a hundred thousand tokens, which is insane. Like that's that's a whole book. Okay, so is I've only really been working with GPT, and uh, I guess you know. Really, that's it. I, I've seen because uh, even when you're on Bing, right? That's like still uh, in the GPT, uh, yep. built off GPT in in that way. Are, are there things that are maybe more specific to uh, the bioinformatics application? It sounds like Claude is just maybe more token space there, or um, so things that lend Claude. itself more sense to what we do here. Yeah. So what happened was OpenAI kind of had a split. So OpenAI is not open. So that, yeah, that's. Yeah. Uh, Bit of a bit of a white lie there. It's absolutely not open. They don't tell you what to train their stuff on. You kind of get hints every now and again. And Tropic uh, kind of was a, a split from OpenAI, and that's so a, a rival thing to OpenAI. And on top of that, you have um, Claude, which is their equivalent of ChatGPT, and they've just released Claude two. And again, that is like ChatGPT four. Yeah, and so it's it's a rival, but it's really cool. I've been using it recently, and it's much faster at returning uh, stuff. I presume that's because you know you don't have a hundred people, a hundred million people around the world hammering it all the time. Um, it's less well known, which is great for me. <laughs> and yeah, so that that's kind of the the uh, the space there. And then you have you know obviously Google have about twenty different projects uh, yeah. on on AI, and they're a all in on AI. They they really really missed the mark there so their equivalent is bard but bard is like you know in uh in kindergarten compared to uh to claude and ChatGPT, which you know are in high school and they've missed the mark so mm. there is specialist uh large language models for certain things but what you can actually do is you can build upon existing models so if you go to hugging face terrible terrible name huggingface.co that's got lots of open source models there and you can reuse those and they have an, a lovely interface for just kind of downloading and reusing them and training them or you can kind of blank them and say okay i'm gonna put my own weights on top of these so a lot of hard work is already done and you can train it on your stuff or you can build upon what is already there and that's going to be the what's you know a lot of uh, applications will do they'll say okay we've got this base of knowledge or a base of how things work and then we're going to put in say our company's data just shove it in then we can have our own kind of private server you can spin these up on amazon um you know to give you answers back specific to your company or say to an area so there's a few uh, biological ones out there so some people say download it all of pubmed because pubmed um provides easy downloads everything that's uh, cc by and that means that you have access to all of that stuff but the large language models are also trained on these as well and that's that's obviously really awesome 
But there is specific ones like Gene GPT from NCBI. Have you had a look at that? I looked at it very briefly in that I saw it in the kind of pre-show notes here. <laughs> so that's the extent of my understanding of Gene GPT. So, I mean, what they do is they've made it very easy to actually work with the APIs from NCBI. And if you've ever worked with APIs, <laughs> they, they can be a challenge. And particularly, you know, for very complex systems, like uh, because NCBI provides so many resources. Yeah. Um, it just makes it a lot easier to kind of drill down into these things and make it work, um, which I've speeds up uh, your entire life. And it just makes it easier for, for getting data in and out. So, you know, that's an example of a, a really, really neat uh, biological um, use case. And I'm sure we're going to see more of these, particularly when you have smaller models. Yeah. You can, you know, put them in a web browser, put them onto a phone. You know, you can actually start using them quite a bit more. Have you used uh, Gene GPT? No, I only saw it yesterday. Uh, okay, you know, sorry. <laughs> this field changes so quickly, you know? You yes. don't have time to keep up with it. Yeah, because, of, yeah, I think a lot of us have definitely had some of the the, the challenges in, in using that uh, NCBI API. So, like, in Promise, I, I like it. Uh, how it actually translates to be determined, at least on my end. So I was wondering if you had some experience on that, but um, that will be interesting. And that even kind of brings me up back to the, the conversation about the research thing, because, and every now and then you'll run into this whenever you're using GPT, you might ask it something of like relevant data or something like that, like that is contemporary, something in 2023. And it gives you this huge disclaimer of like, hey, I can't say anything after I've been trained on materials that are from September, 2021. And this is the extent of my knowledge. They had for a very brief time. I don't actually don't know why they took it out, but it was like uh, a beta plugin for web browsing. I don't know if you saw that, but it's since been just removed. I'm, you know, obviously it was in beta, so maybe for whatever reason they found it inappropriate. But I thought it was very useful because then you can search on things that were up to date. You can like kind of send it to a website; it would scrape it and kind of you know integrate it into its model there. But um, the reason I bring that up is that's going to be really powerful for researchers. Uh, because you're not reliant on uh, the sort of open AI people to retrain their model on the relevant research papers, um, which may take a ton of time because they're not really just cared about the research papers. They want everything, which I'm sure is uh, both time and cost intensive. Um, whereas if like, kind of like what you were saying, if it's a little bit more um, narrow in its capture of materials, it could be updated a lot more frequently. And maybe even by the users to some extent. And, and with this, you're interacting with the API so you can get it immediately. That is the next step. And you can see companies like uh, with vector databases, uh, like Pinecone, they just exploded. They got hundreds of millions in, in uh, investment there recently because people were basically storing live data in them and then using it to feed into the large language models um, to, to fill in this gap that you identified. And there are other projects like uh, AutoGPT and Baby AGI, and yeah. these are kind of iterative things. They work with the the um, the APIs and basically they store information and they build you know better prompts. Uh, you know, going around and around, you can give kind of a few goals like go and do market research on I don't know shoes, and you know, okay, now you know, uh, could you do men's shoes for trail running, you know, and kind of really zoom down and, you know, get market size and you can give all these different things and they can go back and forth to the web and and uh, then back to ChatGPT and kind of interpret it, work it out, make better prompts and then come back. And we used this actually at the hackathon we were at a few months ago. 
Yeah, that was that was a blast. Uh, it was it was kind of a cool way to spend the time at the hackathon because um, I think a lot of our day jobs were caught up in a bunch of different kind of different deliverables and pressures or whatever it might be. Uh, but then to have like what was it, two or three days dedicated to explore GPT and all its little technical nuances, and you were in a little cohort of people kind of just trying to figure it out. Uh, time well spent. I felt like I was like, oh man, I already felt like I was behind in looking at all the different projects that were kind of already proliferating in the space, uh, especially with AutoGPT at that time. It was like, and likely still is like the most forked GitHub repo ever. And, and that and that had just come out or something at that yeah. time. And it was already the most forked uh, repo historically. Yeah, it is insane. Like this field is just changing so rapidly. And by the time this podcast comes out, like we're going to be out of date yeah. <laughs> even even if it's only in two days time you know it's going to be yeah 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 okay so the, the, and then again on the, on the it's hard to talk about lang- uh, large language models in gpt and then even staying to the context matter of bioinformatics right because it impacts so many different things but like i i'm you know i'm always trying to figure out okay how do we reel this back into to the bioinformatics thing um it, because there are such really powerful revelations we talked about already sort of uh the enhancement and productivity of your your a program and you mentioned like a, a 30% um boost in your efficiency and i would say that's somebody who's spent decades you know uh, in the field already and you're already at a high level where i'm sure as you've improved your skills you, you're already at a point of diminishing return so for you to say 30% uh, efficiency. I'm sure for most people, it's like 50, 60% when it's like, I'm still trying to remember, I haven't used this library in forever. What, what freaking pandas function is this? It doesn't matter. GPT knows or, or whatever, or, uh, you know, so it might be even a, a greater boost of efficiency. We talked a little bit about, uh, gene GPT as well, kind of like the, the literature mining, but there's all those other applications in bioinformatics. And I think I'm, because of my experience, I am kind of, Pre, or, or, or I guess I have a disposition to look at like the genetic applications here. But when you look at bioinformatics in general, like I don't know how it's going to, you could take in like whole electronic medical records and draw some interesting insights in terms of patient risk, what's happening at the hospital, different efficiencies. I don't know if it can go as far as diagnostics, but it's going to be able to just see all these different points of connections that are not obvious for people looking out, even, even in the context of just the code interpreter. Like if you can, EMRs, like these are widely, and maybe it sounds wild to uh, somebody in the UK and me being in the US because all these things are so disjointed in the US. So like even if you change providers, if you change job and insurers or something like that, getting your uh, electronic medical records can be a pain. So they're all disjointed in all these different ways, um, but they're all standardized formats, right? So like if you can carry these data with you or for a whole hospital system, they have these massive data sets, the way in which they can now look at their bioinformatics that include genomic data, patient data, uh, treatment history, doctor notes, right? Just even just the language of the notes, um, well, it has the potential to transform the insights a hospital has, therefore informing their action in a way that I don't think uh, we've ever seen. So like in the UK, we have a national health service uh, and in theory, it should all be joined up, but it's not. I mean, absolutely <laughs> not. It's similar to different hospital systems in the US, I think, where people have bought different uh, limb systems, different databases, different whatever. And unfortunately, sometimes the interfaces, you know, it, it can be a ropey where people are literally faxing things, you know, or, or emailing spreadsheets 
because there's no interconnection. And there is lots of projects, you know, to link it all up and make these big data lakes and whatever. But, you know, so, some things move very slowly. Um, but I have heard of a project uh, called Cogstack from King's. So it's a spinner from university uh, where they're using large language models to, you know, read patient records and kind of join up data from lots of different uh, systems in a kind of a, in an unorganized fashion, you know, to try and make sense. And for that, uh, like the primary goal there is say to, identify people say for research projects maybe you need you're looking for people who have uh, a risk of diabetes and they have you know particular say backgrounds or occupations or you know kind of early markers and you want these for like a clinical study it's a good way of identifying those people and you can go talk to them and say you know would you like to be in you know prior drug or whatever uh, obviously you know in, in research context but yeah, it is phenomenal. But you do have to understand for some hospitals, say in the UK, like they are still at the level of writing notes and then scanning handwritten notes into PDFs. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, what are they doing? <laughs> um, and like during the pandemic, we encountered this because we had a team of people just trying to find metadata on COVID patients and COVID samples. So like the hospital labs would be giving us stuff. And then we'd have a team of say four people looking at, you know, a dozen different databases to try and pull in all the different bits of information we needed to then, you know, go to samples to give to the public health bodies. And I was like, that's that's not the way to go. And that was only in 2021, 2022, not very long ago, but hopefully LLMs and things like this might make that job a little bit easier if they're allowed to run wild, but with patient data and PPI, Maybe, and, and I think what we're highlighting here too is the the value of well curated data is going to be huge for this. And um, I th yeah, I think we're seeing a couple companies too in, in the biotech space where you know that is that is the asset of their well curated data sets um, that you know could inform some of these uh, LLMs that uh, will make the the practical application to uh, people in our space. Um, and maybe that's an aspect too worth exploring too of like, you know, with GPT, again, from my near layman perspective of, you know, I've read a couple of articles in Twitter threads on, you know, a major component that dif differentiating factors, the sort of human trained component of it, where there's like a bit of a feedback loop of, of uh, kind of knob turning a little bit. Um, I, I, that's about the extent of my understanding of it, but it sounds like, you know, if you're training it on something with of medical data and you have those uh, kind of SMEs in the field of medical practitioners that are helping fine tune these models and you have that really well curated data set, um, you could start having these really specific nuanced trained models that have really high precision understanding of what's happening here that could stay incredibly up to date, right? In terms of the literature alone, um, man, that can transform uh, so many aspects of the clinical space. And even in that, I have such a temptation to even there's just further beyond just the clinical space of it as it relates to bioinformatics, right? You know, we're obviously involved in the public health space. So that the applications there of those curated data sets, um, SMEs looking at these to kind of fine tune those models, the food safety world uh, also being, you know, kind of well primed for a big impact of these kinds of technologies. I, it's hard for me to think of a, a, a industry that isn't, you know, so years ago, I remember seeing this is just before Global Microbial Identifier started up, or maybe it was around the time it did start up. But you know, every slide you would go to in a conference, every everyone would have a slide of a this satellite overview, you know, of the world. And it was like, you know, we need these high-level overviews. 
looking at everything and scanning everything in real time and pulling all this information in. Well, that went nowhere because, you know, it's quite difficult to do, you know, manually and link up different databases and whatever in a, in a structured manner. Uh, and particularly pulling in all the different resources. You can see little bits of it here and there, you know, kind of work. But it's a really difficult problem. And particularly when you have combined with, say, the well-traveled salad. Do you, do you remember that? There was a slide that went around for one year as well, which was a salad bowl with all the different vegetables and where and, and uh, fruits and where they came from, you know, in the world and just how complex supply chains are. And, you know, when you have a foodborne outbreak, where does it come from? Well, yeah. we don't know. We don't even know which thing caused, you know, was it a tomato? Was it a pepper? Was it a, a cucumber? Who's to know, you know? And uh, because obviously, you know, it takes a few days to, to make someone sick and then, you know, the, the food is long gone at that point. And so hopefully being able to take in all this different information in real time, we might see these signals earlier and better and pull them out. And uh, yeah, who's to know what, you know, how it'll improve things in future. I hope a lot. Yeah. And, and it's cool doing this kind of podcast, kind of keeping our eyes on, on what, where the space is moving, hopefully being able to comment on it uh, to some degree. I think it was a good first episode of just exploring LLMs in general. In kind of closing here, we're kind of running to the top of the hour here. We have been praising it because it's impossible not to, right, to look at how bullish we the world is on these technologies. It's hard for me to even come up with something outside of maybe the, you know, route to AGI apocalypse, uh, you know, component to this. But what are the cons to this? You know, I guess maybe I talked a little bit about the Luddite conversation, not learning uh, those, those basic skills. But I think that the, the, the value of this outweighs that completely uh, of those concerns. So um, are there negative consequences that are obvious to you in the adoption of these technologies outside of maybe the things we've, we've sort of discussed uh, previous? At the moment, it's all trained on, you know, proper first generation data, you know, if you think about it mm -hmm. like that. But all of, you know, because these generate content so easily, that's all going to be pumped out. And you can see it already, you know, with fake books on or AI generated books on, on Amazon. And, you know, there'll be fake conference uh, papers and, and articles, journal articles, and there'll be, you know, uh, all AI generated podcasts and all this. And that's going to be a second wave of vast amounts of, uh, of content being generated. But then the large language models will be trained on that. So it'll be kind of reinforcing all of the, errors and biases of the so, uh, yeah. llms uh along with the human stuff so actually our the human generated content is actually going to have a premium and i think actually it could go like that movie idiocracy have you seen that yes <laughs> so it, we could fall down that hole you know of it idiocracy has where we're all <laughs> drinking electrolytes you know and uh, who needs water <laughs> No one knows how to rebuild society. Yeah, okay, that that's that's a good place to end on Mondo. It has electrolytes. Um, yeah, it, 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 I like that phrase a lot. Uh, I think you said V1 data. That's going to be interesting. So, so yeah, the 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 premium on well curated data. There always has been that, but in this case, um, because of how impactful things could be with uh, LLMs, I think it's going to be all that much more important to understand what it's being trained on and how it's being biased. But yeah, great first episode.